All right. So welcome to Healing the City podcast. My name is Adrienne Crawford, and I'm one of your hosts. And today we have an extra special guest, Colleen Gilchrist. Um, And Colleen is an occupational therapist and a feeding therapist and works here in Tucson, um, actually at the same clinic where my husband works. So (laughs) welcome to the podcast. Colleen and I are also good friends and running buddies. Um, So we've had a lot of times to run and talk about her job and what makes her job really special. Um, And so as I was thinking about healing the city, um, she popped in my brain right away. So Colleen, um, can you talk a little bit, first of all, before we talk about your journey, what is an occupational therapist, and a feeding therapist. (laughs) Hi, I'm Colleen. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with describing occupational therapy because I want to do it justice because no one knows what it is and it's so much. Um, But the term occupational therapy came from back when occupational therapy started. An occupation meant the way that you fill your time. And so I work specifically with children and what fills children's time running, playing, exploring, creating, all those wonderful things. But we also, as occupational therapists, work in mental health, helping people fill their time with the things that they love. We work with people with physical disabilities. We work with, we also mental health, physical, and children. Those are like the primary areas. And then a feeding therapist, people don't know what a feeding therapist is. We all think that feeding just comes naturally. But actually, um, we learn to eat, and there are children who have feeding tubes or different um, diagnoses, genetic conditions, physical conditions, They or get in a car accident. There's all these different things that impact your ability to eat. So I help children learn, relearn, or participate and eat. That also includes children who are picky eaters or sensory feeders. Um, feeding is also the biggest sensory experience you'll ever have because you smell, you taste, you touch. It's just all part of it, and it's really overwhelming. So I like to say that I get to help families enjoy meals together because that's like where we bond. Like we all are learning that at the table, sharing a table, that's where we commune with Jesus, and that's where we commune and en- embrace each other. And I see that as my mission and vision is helping families find a way to find each other around food. Mm, I love that. It's really beautiful. So obviously, like anyone, you must have had a journey to get where you are today. Can you tell us about like what made you go into OT? Because I didn't know what an OT was until I had my son Bentley with Down mm-hmm. syndrome and OT is a part of his life. And in his life, it's more fine motor, like learning to tie your shoes mm-hmm. or um, yeah, just anything with like your fingers that's teeny tiny. But, you know, I would have never as a college student been like, I think I'll go into OT school. So can you describe Mm -hmm. some of that? Mm -hmm. Um, I had a really great mom. Like my mom just wanted me to know and understand the medical world because I think I just respected her and loved her so much that I was like, oh, my mom's a nurse. I want to be a nurse. And she didn't have anything against nurses, but she just wanted me to know. So I actually shadowed a bunch of physicians and specialties. And I shadowed actually a physical therapist when I was like 17. And um, 
Uh, she um, was teaching this little boy how to crawl and he had like a bolster under his belly. Like I'll just always remember it. And it was just really beautiful. And it was beautiful how she engaged the mom. And like, it was just really an empowering experience. And I was like, I want to do this. Like I want to be with people and helping children and helping them in this physical way. And I also at that time volunteered at, um, it was like a group home for children with very, very highly specialized medical conditions that needed a lot of 24-hour nursing care and just to tangibly be able to like be with those children was really empowering um and but I actually didn't think I was smart enough I didn't know I was smart until because like they were like oh OT school PT school it's really hard to get in um so I didn't actually believe I could do it till I was in college and I was like I think I can do this like Mm. so anyway just a little women empowering I think we don't think we're smart but we are so smart and powerful yes absolutely um, okay, so you ca- so when you were in college, where did you go to school? Where did you do your undergrad? Mm, I got my undergrad at the University of Arizona in physiology and psychology. Well, I minored in psychology. And then I went on to OT school at the University of Washington in Seattle. Okay. And the reason that you went up to Seattle, was that for the school or that was because your husband, Corey, was going to be going to, to a counseling school up there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were kind of looking for cities that had both a counseling program for him as well as an OT school for me. So yeah, that's how I ended up in Seattle. And I ended up in feeding therapy. I didn't answer that question um, because actually one of my mentors, my fieldwork supervisor, like so when I was in school and getting trained, she specialized in feeding and she actually worked on the NICU. And it was just so amazing to see how her calming, peaceful presence kind of blessed these mothers in just such a critical time to learn how to feed their babies or learn how to be with their babies if they couldn't feed their babies. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to get back to that question a little bit later about the different, like for people who maybe don't understand that idea of actually, let's just jump into it. Yeah. Why would a mother not be able to feed her baby? Can you describe some of the scenarios? Hmm. Yeah. Um, oh man. I mean, I'm not even specialized yet. I I like long term, I have a lot of dreams of becoming a lactation consultant, but there's a lot of reasons that moms can't feed their babies. I mean, even typically developing children, I mean, there's their anatomy and there's the mom's anatomy. So that's just breastfeeding. But then there's also, you know, there's babies who have like cleft lip, cleft palate. There's babies who are born preterm. And so sometimes if you're born before 30 weeks, you do not have the motor skills to eat like that hasn't been developed yet in their brain. Um, So those babies automatically need to have a nasogastric tube. So a little tube that goes up into their nose and feeds food down into their tummies. Um, And then it's a journey for them of teaching those babies as they're so medically fragile how to eat Um, or any baby who has like a cardiac condition. You know, our body's primary goal is to survive, to get oxygen to our brains. Um, And so if our heart or our lungs aren't working right, often feeding is difficult. So those are usually the itty bitty babies, why they struggle. Um, And then like for Bentley, like not most, I would say some children with Down syndrome also have cardiac involvement. And so they have trouble eating. And then they, some also have different, like we all have different tone, different muscle tone. And so if you don't have as strong or engaged muscles all the time, it's harder to eat as well or to suck. Yeah, when when I had this um, fear that somebody gave me in the hospital about um, what they call nipple confusion, so not oh. being able to go back and forth between a bottle and the mom, mm-hmm. 
And so when Bentley was born, I would um, I would pump and then I would have the milk and I'd have a tiny little syringe and I would mm-hmm. syringe feed him every two hours until he was ready to use those muscles. But um, yeah, I was discouraged from, from nursing him and, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad that I did. But um, I mean, a lot of that comes from the people in your profession and how they mm-hmm. view the capabilities of their patients, right? And mm-hmm. um, okay, so we're gonna get back to some of that. So you're in you're in OT school in Seattle, mm-hmm. and how long is OT school? How many years is it? So if you get a master's degree, which is what I have, it's two and a half. A lot of programs are moving to four year doctoral programs. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, do you think that's a good direction to move in? Do you think it? I think it's just where everything in the medical career or field is moving is like everything is becoming instead of like bachelors, it's becoming a master's like the same is happening with dietitians. Um, I see the benefit. I also see how it's better to just like get your hands dirty, like to just get in there. And I mean, I think if they added an extra year of paid um, what is that called? Like we call them field works, but like internships, I think that's really beneficial. I don't know if like spending another year reading textbooks, you sure, know, but like another year of the like mm-hmm. on the in. job training. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I see that as being really powerful. But mm-hmm. And so did you work as an OT in Seattle or was that the time the entire time you were there was the time you were in school? Um, I did work while I was in Seattle. Um, I actually wasn't, I don't know if you know these stories. Um, I wasn't sure I wanted to work in pediatrics because I was told that I have high levels of empathy and that they didn't think I had my, we had like a one-on-one supervisor and she thought I didn't have the resilience to survive, um, because I actually had, um, a patient pass away in Tucson that I worked with that I loved dearly, dearly. And I actually was really worried about him leaving and I don't know why. And um, and then he passed away from drowning and it was really traumatic. And so when I was in OT school, I decided I was going to try working with adults that maybe God was calling me to adults. Um, so I worked with a man with a spinal cord injury. I'm trying to think who else I worked with. Oh, I worked with, well, And then I moved back into pediatrics because that's just where my heart comes alive. Um, I worked with a 12-year-old girl with cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. which was really rich. Mm -hmm. And so, like, when you were working with the gentleman with the spinal cord injury, what were some of your goals with him? Oh, um, you know, it's so funny. I... I was working under, since I wasn't yet an OT, I was working under the supervision of um, someone else. So I had to do their goals. And, you know, their goals for him were, you know, I mean, he um, he never got out of bed, though he was physically capable. He had severe depression. So that's where I'm like, you know, let's nip the upper issue and find help him find something that he loves to do a reason to get out of his bed um but his goals were turning so like making sure that every hour and a half he rolled so he wouldn't get a pressure ulcer and so that his main pressure ulcer healed um as well as like getting him to kind of strengthen his upper body so that he was physically capable of transferring himself out of his bed into his wheelchair mm-hmm. so and um how many hours a day would an ot be required or needed to be with him would you estimate uh the the unfortunate thing it's all about insurance so insurance usually will pay for between 45 minutes and 75 minutes so like an hour and a half 
or an hour and 15 okay, minutes. Okay, so your job with him was just to go in for like a small session of the day. And then um, can you describe, so like, so he's there. Where was he living? Was he living? He was at home. He was at home. So because, I mean, I don't know if you care about all these specifics, but because his spinal cord injury happened when he was at work, his he was a little different like he actually had money because of a lawsuit um so he he had money to be in his home to get care so I wasn't actually working as an OT so I spent more his OT spent that much time with him and I spent like three hours with him a day so as like his aide or a respite worker okay and did he have 24-hour care then with him um he did he started out with 24-hour care to make sure he like didn't get a pressure ulcer and then it dropped down to like eight hours of care during the day. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you worked with him and, and kind of realized that maybe adults, like you said, didn't, it, your heart didn't come alive necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so you moved back to children. Mm-hmm. And so the 12 year old with cerebral palsy, how long did you work with that child? I think I worked with her a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I actually continued even as I became an OT. I'd work with her on the weekends because I just loved her. Like we became family. So, And so this work was not as an OT. This is working through an agency as a mm-hmm. respite care provider, mm-hmm. which for those of you who don't know, um, each state does it differently, but... People who have um, physical disabilities and or intellectual disabilities can qualify through their state to receive a certain number of respite and habilitation and physical therapy, occupational therapy, etc. hours a week. And so respite hours tends to be like the word sounds. It's like giving parents or caregivers a break Um and allowing someone else to come into the home and or into the environment where the person is and working with them or playing mm-hmm. with them without and respite doesn't have any goals it's mm-hmm. just a space to be together whereas like habilitation would have mm-hmm. goals like learning to tie shoes or learning mm-hmm. to cook or safely crossing the street mm-hmm. being at the pool safely etc um Okay, and so when you moved to Tucson, did you get a job at children's clinics right away? Yes, I had to think about that. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, there was a couple of places I applied, and um, yeah, but children's clinics hired me right away, and I actually took, they had to get me like um, prior auth, just like so that insurance could bill through me, so I didn't start for three weeks, but yeah, then I just jumped right in, so I've been working there for five years now. Can you describe children's clinics for those who have never been there? Like, just take me in through the front door and, and back mm. to your room. Yeah. So I actually, when I interviewed to children's clinics, I was like, this is like not a real place. Like, they, these don't exist. Um, I was just like w- waiting to figure out like where its brokenness is. So it's good for me to remember how amazing it is. So you walk in and like the lobby is just made for children. Like there is like always a volunteer doing some sort of game or art activity. Well, actually, usually both. There's um, a movie playing. There's a light wall, like a sensory wall. There's a fish tank. There's the check-in. You can go upstairs. So they have primary care there. And then they try to be, they, they are a medical home. Like there's like maybe 
three specialty services that they don't have right now, but they're working to get them. And so what a medical home is means that you can go there and do all of your medical needs. Like you can see your orthopedic doctor, you can see your developmental specialist, you you can see all of your child's specialty doctors and they share notes. So we read each other's notes and we're all on the same page to try to get this child the best care. And we have rehabilitative services, which is where I work. Um, so there's OT, PT, speech therapy, and audiology on site. And audiology is just amazing to have on site too. And dietitians. Um, I'm so used to having to like call or try to find dietitians and just that I even tangibly can see a child with the dietitian so we can work on goals is just really powerful as well. So it's like one place that a child can go to get all their medical needs. And so, and and we don't do it perfectly, but we're striving. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to break this up into two parts. Part one is going to be looking at OT, like mm-hmm. separate from feeding therapy, because I feel like they are very different mm-hmm. um, specialties that you provide. And so um, take me through as a, maybe think of a patient um, that, you know, obviously, um, and just so listeners know we're going to do our we will um be we are protected under HIPAA and we're going to do our best to talk about people um without obviously giving an information that could ever help you figure out who the patient is while also allowing you to really understand like what a particular patient might be going through so if you could think of a patient who you provided OT services for and maybe think of their age and diagnosis Mm -hmm. and then like some of the goals that you were helping them work on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you want me to walk you through one specific yeah. patient? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the nice thing is, uh, like, I mean, you know, you or I, like if we were talking about one person with cerebral palsy, like maybe we'd be talking about the same person, but there are like children's clinic sees like everyone in Tucson who has cerebral palsy. So it won't be as identifiable. Um, there's a little boy that I worked with since he was born. I actually was, well, maybe that'll give away. (laughs) Um, anyway, so I started working with him. Well, I was pregnant with one of my kids, so he, um, I would be helping the mom feed him and sometimes she'd want me to feed him to kind of observe how usually I always just want the parents to do it. Like it doesn't matter if I can feed a child because it needs to be the parent to be able to feed him. So I very rarely do, but she wanted to see how I would do it. So I would rest him on my pregnant belly, which is so powerful and help model like how I would feed him. Um, but he had a whole slew of medical diagnoses. So he had cerebral palsy. He has a genetic condition. Um, he has lower motor skills. So he has a tr- hard time. He had a hard time making a seal on a bottle. Um, mom never breastfed and that was her choice um um and so early on when I first started seeing him it was trying to get him to bottle feed but he had always had a g-tube like they they saw him and they knew like he's he's not independent and we think of g-tubes we can sometimes think like that's giving up like oh they got a g-tube we don't want them to feed orally whereas I actually see it opening it up like there's not the same pressure anymore of getting calories in this child now they can just enjoy feeding and we can figure out how they like to eat and when they like to eat and there's no more pressure on getting the calories in because the calories can go through the tube and then all oral experiences can be positive so that's what we did at the beginning can you break down what is a g-tube for those who may have never seen one thank you so we 
talked about NG tube goes like through the nose. That's a temporary fix to mm-hmm. getting calories into your. And you may have seen those. They're like these tiny little tubes that usually have tape on a child's mm-hmm. upper lip. Um, yeah, and go directly, and and then so what? And then a G tube would be. A G-tube is they cut, a, it's a surgery, so they cut a little hole in the tummy um, or through the abdominal wall, and they use a balloon to keep hold it in place, and it literally puts nutrients right into your stomach. They also have what's called J-tubes, so it goes into your small intestine if you're not digesting right. And but. if I was going to feed a child with a G-tube, mm-hmm. like what is that? So tell me what that would look like. So you would pick up the shirt, and the, is there like a cap on the end of the G-tube mm-hmm. that, you, that you unscrew? So it's like a little plug. So yeah, okay. like it, they're called Mickey buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to get kids to be attached to their Mickey buttons, like just mm-hmm. realizing like this is a beautiful part of who I am. So you just kind of pop it open um, and then you take a syringe and it connects or like a tube and, and a syringe. And so you can either connect that to a pump and the pump will automatically push food in to the baby or the child's tummy or you can syringe. And so it can be gravity, like you just kind of pour and hold and it naturally goes down into the stomach um, or you can syringe. And so you put a plunger on top and push it in. Yeah. We like gravity because then it just nicely, slowly goes. Right. And a lot of moms I know are like moms on the go. And so they're pumping that that thing right in. And then there's two types of food. There's um, like a like a formula product that Mm -hmm. you can buy or you can make you can buy a a high quality blender and you can blend Mm -hmm. like anything that you've eaten, like whatever the family's eating, you Mm -hmm. can blend it. And put it in through the G-tube. And there's different philosophies on that and Mm -hmm. and obviously different levels of just obvious if you make your own food it takes longer than if you just mm-hmm. mix water into the formula and the really nice thing in the last two years is there have been real food blends like they're actually called that real food blends formulas so they're literally chicken stock and sweet potatoes and you know whatever and that is just all real food so it's not made out of cornstarch or corn syrup products which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and there's a whole industry of mm-hmm. blogging moms. There's Facebook groups of people who are sharing how to do this because there are a lot of kids and it's no longer this isolated event with social media. That's mm-hmm. one of the beautiful things is that these moms and dads can connect to each other and and mm-hmm. hear stories and support each other. Okay, so now we've broken back down the G-tube. Let's go back to our little friend who oh, was yeah. um, learning to eat from a bottle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so we were working on bottle feeding till six months, and he just never really got it. Um, and that was like part of it was his other diagnoses. And that's where I try as a clinician. I know parents come to me and they're like, I just want my baby to be like every other baby and take a bottle. And I want to be a spacious place to hear and hold that. And I also want to be a spacious place to advocate for the child of they need to breathe first or they need to be medically stable. And so how can we make this whole feeding interaction positive? Like meet your goals of you want to give your baby a bottle and then meet his goals of he can't breathe or this is stressful Mm -hmm. for him. Um, So this particular child, you know, they would try for little bits throughout the day. He never took that much, but like mom got to bottle feed him. He got to try and have that experience, but it just never clicked. And then around six months, we started doing solid foods because that's when we, I think he was a little older, but that's when we typically introduce them. And so we started offering solid foods, which a lot of children do better with. We don't think about it, but liquids just move so fast through your mouth. 
a puree can kind of you can work with it for a little bit longer and um, he did much better with purees and then his journey was he struggled with textured foods because you have to chew it and that motor skill as well as the sensory experience was just really hard um, or challenging Um, so we worked on that for a long time and actually the really beautiful thing is after you know years what felt like forever probably to the mom of working on it um because he eventually got to the point where he would chew food and we're like yeah you're chewing food so it's just celebrating those small victories like you or I like we see an 11 month old child chew food and spit them out and we're like what's wrong like why'd they spit the food out whereas like as a feeding therapist I'm like he felt confident enough to know he couldn't swallow it or he didn't have the skill to swallow it and he spit it out like that's amazing like I just try to celebrate those things so he got to the point where he'd chew food and spit it out and then we did investigate it and be like oh you didn't chew it enough and he got to choose like do you want to put a fresh piece in or you want to pop that back in because he's already done some of the work with it you know which you know not every family feels that's socially acceptable and then we work with what's socially acceptable in each family um but he actually now has gotten to the place where he is no longer using his g-tube he chews his so he got to the point where he would chew food and swallow it but little bits and then he got to the point where he was eating and then this is where i work with a dietitian of like let's decrease his formula so he eats more real food Mm -hmm. um and then he was eating more and more food and chewing it and feeling successful and then he like it just clicked overnight that he got mm. competent or cap- not competent, capable of using a straw. Um, and so then he was drinking his formulas. And so everything was oral. And now he eats, you know, what a typical child would eat, you know, which is really, really exciting. He still has his tube. They like to keep tubes in for a while to make it through one cold and flu season. Mm-hmm. Um, just in case it's much easier to just keep it in instead of having to put it back in. But He's an all oral eater, which is really exciting. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like Jesus gives me those experiences because sometimes it just feels like when you've been working on something for four years that takes a typical child 12 months, you just feel like giving up. And so it's really powerful. You know, I actually have a, a child that I have seen into being a 20 year old and he got new skills at 19. Like he started mm. eating different foods. And so I feel like Jesus has given me these experiences and different kids to never give up hope. And I think that's a challenging thing about us in the medical profession is we're like, oh, we can't justify therapy. We're discharging you, quote unquote, discharged, like meaning I'm not seeing you anymore for therapy. You're not getting this skill. Whereas I never give up hope. And I feel like that's the gospel is I don't know what he's going to do at 19. I don't know what he's going to do at 11. And I have to follow the rules of insurance and what they'll pay for. And But I'm never giving up hope. And I don't want parents to either. And I think I frustrate some other clinicians in that. And I mean, there's wisdom, but we don't know what God's going to do. And we don't know what these kids are going to do. And we don't know what they feel in their bodies. That's another thing. Another reason babies don't eat and we forget about it is reflux. And if you don't feel good, you don't eat. If you're vomiting all the time, you don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy for us to forget that. And so I think um, I, as a human, I long to be seen and known and understood and then supported where I am in the journey. And I think I try to be that kind of advocate for the children and for the parents of like, I want to see and know you and come alongside you in this journey. And sometimes it's just sitting and things being really hard and holding on to hope when it feels just hopeless. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So, and that's such a gift that you offer to your families. Yeah.